God's God's voice to us is not always a great sort of theological statement, <laughs> right? But uh, but when we when we walk with Him, we begin to you know just like it says in John ten that the sheep know the voice of the shepherd, and then they can recognize when some somebody's not the shepherd. Okay. I wonder if you all uh, feel challenged like I do just to uh, distinguish is it my own good idea or is it God's voice? Mm -hmm. That's something that I sometimes struggle mm -hmm. with. We're going to, it'll probably be after lunch, but we're going to talk about that. I'm going to give you a, a list that's been helpful to me of characteristics that usually mark when it's God speaking to you. And we don't, you know, a lot of times we think of things and have thoughts and do things that are good, that are directed by God, right? He doesn't always have to be the one coming in and saying, I want you to do this. He gives us a brain. It's like my kids, right? When I was raising my children, I didn't want to have to tell them everything to do. I wanted them to think for themselves to be mature, to make good decisions. I wanted to guide them in that. And I, in a lot of ways, that's the way it is with God. It's us, as we, His children, are growing and maturing, He gives us the ability to make good choices, do make wise decisions. And sometimes He backs off and says, what you going to do? <laughs> okay? And that's okay. So there's, there's, there's something to this relationship. We can get caught on either side of thinking that I can't do anything unless I've somehow had some epiphanal you know, revelation from God speaking somehow to me that this is what I've got to do. We can, we can drift, I think, too far in that direction where now we are paralyzed because God hasn't spoken. Well, He gave us a brain. He gave us ability. He gave us life experience and wisdom. Use it. And, when, and trust Him that if he needs to give us some direction, he can step in at any moment and give that direction. If we're starting to get off track or if we're you know, making unwise choices, but a lot of our lives is, is simply being obedient to do what, what you know, the calling he's given us to do and work it out. Um, but, but the longer we walk with him, the more we recognize when he does say something to us and we go, that's the Lord. You know, that's Him speaking to me. And, and we need to pay attention to those and be ready to obey quickly in those cases. All right, let's talk about the uh, second item there, purpose. Remember, the devotional life is to know God. By the way, there's the danger that we have in our culture and our society is that, that, that we're soaked in you know drowning in in information about God right I mean there's always another book coming out there's always another conference there's always another speaker there's always another you know show on the internet or the television that's gonna give us you know the key to whatever right that's somehow gonna help us solve that problem or get beyond that thing or whatever I mean we're just we're just inundated with with all kinds of things, and they're not necessarily bad things, they're probably good things. But there's so much of it that it can even distract us from 
you know, the, the purity and simplicity of devotion to Christ. Um, and that's what we need to be careful about is that, that we, we don't get so distracted by all the good things out there that we're not carving out the time and disciplining our lives to do what's the best thing, which is to spend time with God, <laughs> to seek His face. Um, so, yeah. Uh, so the second purpose of the devotional life is so that we can be transformed by God. Let's look at these passages. Uh, Cassie, you want to look at Romans twelve two. Vasilka, you want to take Second Corinthians three seventeen and eighteen. And Laura Lane, how about uh, why don't you do um, Colossians three, but just do verses one, two, and ten. if we're not if we're not in the process of being transformed and changed then all of the stuff that we've just been talking about really it really doesn't doesn't matter because God's purpose for us is to move us more and more into being like his dear son so if we're just sitting back enjoying a relationship but refusing to make the changes that he's revealing to us, then we're then we're being disobedient. Okay, Romans twelve two. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Right. Wow. So there you have it. Right. We are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. So this is again something that happens in the spiritual realm because that's what how what that means when it's talking about being transformed in our mind how we think what we believe how we perceive okay second corinthians 3 17 and 18 now the lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the lord is there is freedom and we all with unveiling face beholding the glory of the god are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Yeah. Right. So that's what it's all about. Is that slowly, little by little, from glory to glory, there's that idea of this, there being stages in this process, steps, progress, maturing. We're going from glory to glory, more and more into the image of Christ. Okay, Colossians 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge and the image of its creator. Right, we're being renewed in the image of our creator. Isn't that amazing that God wants us to become more and more like Him. That, that's amazing to me. 
He's made us with the capacity. He made us in His image, and He wants us to become more and more like Him. Now, Satan has taken this truth of the universe that the God Creator created beings in His image that He wants to have relationship with and communion with. And remember, you can't have communion. A human's not going to have fellowship with a water buffalo, right? Because they're not the same. They're not the same. But God says, I want to have communion with you, so we are the same. How are we the same? In spirit. God is spirit. We worship Him in spirit and truth. But Satan has taken that truth and is distorting it to uh, sort of make it appealing that we are divine. Okay? That divinity is within us and that we can somehow attain to divinity. And pretty soon that becomes we are God. See what you see the difference there? Okay? The the deception of the enemy is to take a truth and stretch it. Or take a truth and contaminate it with a grain of falsehood. So he takes this truth that God wants us to become more and more like him. And Satan then makes it appealing to humanity to somehow say that we eventually, you know, we are divine. And we're going to get into that a little bit later when we talk about meditation. Because in meditation, this is where people have gotten off track. They have felt like, well, meditation is a means to that, to recognizing our divineness and connecting with our divineness. So... uh, but there's, there, it's, it's amazing that God has given us this capacity to know Him and be known by Him and become more and more like Him. So that's the point of, of transformation, is to become like Christ uh, little by little. Let me read you what, what Foster has to say about that. He has a term that I really like. Do I have it written in your notes? Um, I don't think I do. Right in there, the way of disciplined grace. The way of disciplined grace. He says... uh, When we despair of gaining inner transformation through human powers of will and determination, we're opened to a wonderful new realization that inner righteousness is a gift from God to be graciously received. The need to change within us is God's work, not ours. It is a grace that is given. God has given us the disciplines of the spiritual life as a means of receiving His grace. The disciplines allow us to place ourselves before God so that He can transform us. Okay? So... The disciplines of the Christian life, of which we're going to focus on one today, devotional meditation, are a means by which we place ourselves before God so that this transformation process can occur. Because you have to be in the right environment, right, in order for the change to happen. A farmer is helpless to grow grain. All he can do is provide the right conditions for the growing of grain. He cultivates the ground, he plants the seed, he waters the plants. And then the natural forces of the earth take over and up comes the grain. 
This is the way it is with spiritual disciplines. They are a way of sowing to the Spirit. The disciplines are God's way of getting us into the ground. They put us where He can work within us and transform us. By themselves, the spiritual disciplines can do nothing. They can only get us to the place where something can be done. They are God's means of grace. The inner righteousness we seek is not something that is poured on our heads. God has ordained the disciplines of the spiritual life as the means by which we place ourselves where He can bless us. In this regard, it is proper to speak of the path of disciplined grace. You catch the two aspects then of this, right? Disciplined grace. So there's discipline in it. We have to do something. There's a part for us to play. We have to discipline ourselves to be put in a position where God can pour His grace upon us. But then there's the grace part where He's actually then working on us and working in us to transform us. Right? We cannot do that ourselves. Don't, don't we all agree with that? We, we can make some outward changes, but they're not going to be the maturing of our spirit. They're just going to be some outward changes. The maturing of our spirit takes place through grace, which is God's work in us. But our discipline of practicing a devotional life, prayer, reading scripture, meditation, fasting, all of these disciplines put us in a position where then God's grace can make the changes within us. Does that make sense? It is in this regard, okay, it is grace because it is free, it is disciplined because there is something for us to do. We must always remember that the path does not produce the change. It only places us where the change can occur. This is the path of disciplined grace. Once we live and walk on the path of disciplined grace for a season, we will discover internal changes. We do no more than receive a gift, yet we know the changes are real. We know they're real because we discover the spirit of compassion we once found so hard to exhibit is now easy. In fact, to be full of bitterness would be the hard thing. Divine love has slipped into our inner spirit and taken over our habit patterns. In the unguarded moments, there is a spontaneous flow from the inner sanctuary of our lives of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no longer the tiring need to hide our inner selves from others. We do not have to work hard at being good and kind. We are good and kind. To refrain from being good and kind would be the hard work because goodness and kindness are part of our nature. Just as the natural motions of our lives once produced mire and dirt, now they produce righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Shakespeare observes that the quality of mercy is not strained, nor are any of the virtues once they have taken over the personality. That's what transformation is. It's the slow growth in us that changes us from being selfish, bitter, angry, you know, people to, to spirit-filled people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience. And that begins to come naturally instead of us having to grind it out. Okay, At first you kind of grind it out, right? Because it's not part of your nature yet. It's not part of that personality, that renewed man inside you. But as grace works in you, and as you place yourself before God to be worked on by His Holy Spirit through the disciplines, then those things begin to happen in you. And you realize, oh, wow, I did not blow up at my neighbor like I did six months ago when he 
you name it. You know, his dog barked all night. That made me so angry, and I went over and I chewed him out. And now, and now I don't even want to do that. So you begin to notice these changes in you, and that's the transforming process of the disciplined life. Okay, so there's a way that this happens. Now, yeah, before I get into the the, the way this happens, let me just remind us that it's we're not the goal is not some sort of emotional feeling, okay? And I'm not discounting the, the, the role that emotions and that feeling has in our spiritual life. It is a legitimate place for us to walk with, with Him. We should be feeling a greater sense of joy in our life, right, as we draw closer to the Lord. But our goal is not to just have some kind of a feeling in our Christian life. And this is where we need to be careful because a lot of times the way we gauge how we're doing spiritually is on how we feel. Well, I feel close to God today, so I must be doing well. I don't feel close to God today. I must not be doing good. Okay, Feelings can be a gauge. I'm not discounting that. But they are not the goal. Our goal is not to then every day have that feeling, that same feeling. If we make that our goal, we are in trouble because we are human beings as well, made in, in fleshly bodies that have up and downs to life. And if our, if our goal is that we've always got to somehow have an emotional high experience of God's presence in our life, we've set ourselves an unrealistic goal. Now the benefit of this disciplined life, day by day, faithfully persevering over time, maturing and getting closer to God, is that we will find ourselves more happy. <laughs> okay? Generally we will see that we're lighter people, that we're, that we're not as negative and down as we used to be. But that is not the goal, that's the byproduct. The goal is what? Right? Transformation. Remember, we said there's two goals to this. Knowing God and being transformed. The goal is transformation. The goal is that we become more and more like Christ. So, just, just to caution that don't, don't take that as your goal. It can be used as a gauge and it's helpful and it is a byproduct <coughs> of this process. But our goal is that we become more and more like Christ. So that there, there are those days more and more when we go, man, I'm not bitter at my mother-in-law, you know, for what she just did or whatever. Or I didn't just have that fight with my spouse like I often do when he or she, you know, does that thing that annoys me so much. <laughs> right? So the goal is that, that we're moving in this process of becoming more and more like Christ and the fruits of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control are more and more evidenced every day in our life. So, it's, it's, it's like this. As we draw closer to God, He shines His light on our lives. Right? Because He is light. God is light. So when we're drawing closer to Him, we're getting more and more into the light, aren't we? We're getting more and more into the light. The, His light shines on our life. 
When His light shines in our life, what happens? It shows stuff up, doesn't it? Something is going to show up. When that thing shows up in the light, there's the opportunity for transformation. We look at that and we go, oh, wow. Man, I, I didn't realize that I am fill in the blank. You know, I am, uh, I am not very thankful. I'm an ungrateful person too much of the time. Wow, didn't realize that. God, forgive me for being ungrateful. Shine your light into my life and help me to become a more grateful person. I want to be transformed. I want to learn what it means to recognize your goodness and give thanks and be thankful and grateful for all that you've done for me. I want to learn what it means to, to recognize what you've done and not just focus on the things that I maybe don't have or that I wish I had or that were taken from me or whatever. And so we begin that process. The next day you recognize, oh wow, I was ungrateful in that situation. Thank you, Lord, for showing that to me. I repent of that. Thank you for this, you know, what I see in that situation versus what I was ungrateful for before. So we do that little by little. Six months later, a year later, people are saying, man, you're just, you're just grateful for everything, aren't you? You're always thinking of something to be thankful for. What's that about? <laughs> okay. So they, they, our personality begins to change, right? Our, our character begins to grow and develop and mature and become more like Christ. That's what transformation is about. So you, you draw closer to the light. What happens, you know, when you're far from the light, you're in the dark, right? Do you notice all the stuff in the dark? Right? When the lights are out in the room, you don't see much in the room. But once you flip the lights on, you notice all the dirt on the floor and the things that haven't been dusted. And so sometimes you just think like, oh, I'd just rather be in the dark, <laughs> right? I don't, I don't want to see all that stuff. So people stay in the dark. Actually, that's very true, right? A lot of people like to live in the dark because they don't want to have to deal with what's going to happen when you come into the light. But the closer we come to the light, the more His revelation shines in our lives and the more we see what needs to be changed. And then we're given that opportunity to have the way of disciplined grace where we discipline ourselves so that God can then work His grace in us to bring about the change. And then we realize I'm not that same person I was two years ago, five years ago. So um, there's actually a formula that I like to think about because I am kind of Western in my brain. And you, you mentioned earlier, Laura Lynn, you know, that you struggle sometimes with, you know, you want to know God. And so it means like gathering information and figuring things out and reading and learning. And that's I mean, that's something a lot of us struggle with. I struggle with that, too. And a lot of it is because we are Western people. Our, uh, uh, we are formed a lot by just the way we've been raised and the environment that, that our culture has provided for us and our parents and our grandparents. And in the West, in you know, systematic things, processed and orderly things are valued and information is valued and knowledge and learning is valued I mean, not, I mean, there's other cultures that value those things too but in the west those are especially valued so 
Our bent is to gather information and learn things. It's a little bit actually probably easier for an Eastern person to have this more uh, relational aspect of their communion with God because they're not quite as drawn to that. Now you can get into some of that. Koreans, yes, okay, they're very systematized. But in general, Eastern versus Western. Eastern tends to be more relational. Western tends to be more, you know, give me the facts, show me the data, analyze kind of thing. So don't feel bad that that's a struggle. Part of it is just the way you are. And, and God is going to transform that, right? So that's, but I like formulas, part of the Western part of me. And there's this formula for transformation that I think could be helpful for us. It's not in your notes, so you'll need to write this down. Just write down four words. Revelation plus right response equals transformation. So this is how it works. God gives us a revelation. He puts us in a situation where we real we realize something. There's a revelation to us. Okay? It might be something we read in, in the scriptures. It might be something that happens in our life. It might be something somebody says to us in a message. It might be something somebody you know says to us in passing. It, who knows what the method God might choose to bring a revelation. It might be what he says to you in your quiet time while you're waiting to hear his voice and then he speaks that's a revelation okay I had a revelation didn't I my revelation was God said I want you to quit your job so after the revelation we then need to give the right response there's two aspects to the right response the first is worship The second is obedience. Anytime we receive a revelation from God, we need to do these two things that make up the right response. First, we need to worship. Because God has spoken to you. God has given a revelation to you. God has input into your life, which means what? He cares about you. He loves you. He's, he's involved with you. He's communing with you. He's wanting that walking relationship with you. And when He does that, we need to worship Him. doesn't mean that we run to a church service, you know, and, and sing a praise song. I'm not talking about necessarily that kind of worship. I'm talking about the worship that means, Oh God, thank you for just revealing this thing to me. You are amazing. I worship you. I adore you. I bow before you. You are the God who made me. You are so loving to patiently, you know, thunk over my head for the 15th time this thing you just showed me, you know. Um, so we need to worship him. And then we got to obey him. Right? We got to do what it is that he may be pointing out. But if we will do those two things, then we will become transformed because God's grace will work in our lives 
and that will begin to change. That change will begin to happen. So, is this formula biblical? Well, I think it is, because if we look at some examples, let's do that. Let's take a look at Moses. Exodus 34. So you know the story. Moses is taking the children of Israel out of Egypt. They've left. They're on their way to the promised land. But it's not going so good. In fact, God says, I give up on these people and uh, their obstinate ways. In fact, if you look in verse chapter 33, the first few verses of chapter 33 is pretty startling what God says. The Lord spoke to Moses. This is after they've done the golden calf thing. Um, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you, <laughs> and the people whom you, notice he says you have brought up from the land of Egypt. He doesn't even want to admit that he brought them out of the land of Egypt. It's kind of like, I distance myself from these people. To the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, To your descendants I will give it. Okay, I made a promise. They got to go, you know. I swore they got to go in there. But you take them in. Look at verse 2. I'll send an angel before you. Verse 3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you're an obstinate people, lest I destroy you on the way. I mean, God is so fed up. He's saying, I'll send an angel. But I'm not going. I've had it. Because I made a promise, I'm going to keep it, and they're going to get to go, but I'm not going with them. So what is Moses' response? I mean, what would you do if you were Moses in this situation? This, this whole story is just so fascinating to me when you try to put yourself in Moses' shoes. Do you notice what God is giving Moses the opportunity to be? The new Abraham, right? He's, he's going to, in fact, God, uh, you know, God later says, I'm going to destroy them and start over with you, Moses. He's giving Moses the opportunity to be an Abraham. And Moses says, you can't do that. It's just amazing, this guy Moses. So in verse 12, Moses responds back to the Lord. Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you said to me, Bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Like, who's this angel guy you're going to send? <laughs> Moreover, you, you have said, I have known you by name. Ooh, sound familiar, right? I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, let me know your ways. What? that I may, what? Know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Oh, by the way, consider too that this nation is your people. <laughs> Remember, you, you weren't going to call them your people, but they are your people, God. I mean, Moses is being pretty bold here, isn't he? This is some kind of relationship Moses has with God. But you see where the heart of it is? Hey, we know each other. You said that you know me, God. 
So how can you be doing this? So what is God's response to that? Look at verse 14. And he, God, said, My presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. Okay. But what's he not saying yet? He's not saying, I'm going to go with those people. He's saying, I'll go with you, Moses, because I know you. Is your, uh, how, how does that read in some other translations? Mm-hmm. My presence shall go with you, and I'll give you rest, Moses. You. So what does Moses do? Look at verse 15. Then Moses said to God, If your presence doesn't go with us, do not lead us up from here. So Moses is the great intercessor, intercessor for the children of Israel, right? And says, God, if you don't go with all of us, then I'm not going. Then don't, don't, let's not, we can't do this. If you're not going to go with us, for how then can it be known that I found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not by you going with us? so that we, I, and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who are upon the face of the earth. So Moses is appealing to God's glory. He's saying, God, you created these people to be different, to be known by the whole earth as your people, so that you can be known, so that people can know that there's one true God. The way to God at that time, remember, was through Israel. They were the chosen people. They were the ones who'd been given the revelation. So if you want to know God, you need to come and learn it from Israel. So Moses is appealing to God's glory and saying, if you don't restore these people and go with them, then the whole earth is not going to know how great you are or how to know you. What what an amazing insight Moses had to, to get to God in a sense, right? Because what is God's response? Verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you've spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and what? I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. Wow. Now there's the ending of a great conversation. So overwhelmed with this interaction with God that Moses can only finish by saying, God, you just got to show me your glory. You know, I just got to see you. Right? And what does God say? And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And so then it goes into this passage where he hides Moses in the cleft of a rock and shows him his glory. If you want to see what that happens there, flip to chapter 34 and look down at verse <coughs> 5. Then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Okay, so God just revealed himself to Moses and gave him his name, which is rather lengthy, okay? <laughs> it took up two verses to, to, for God to kind of give him his name, but, but it's interesting how God describes himself in this passage. 
right? Both aspects of God's character. His graciousness and mercy and love and also his righteousness. And an inability to excuse sin or allow his presence to be defiled by sin. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So we learn a lot about God just in that one little definition or two-verse definition that God gives to Moses of himself. So Moses has just had an incredible revelation, right? So this has happened. Now what's Moses' response? <coughs> Verse 8. Yeah. I mean, he, he drops to the ground pretty fast. Do you remember the other time Moses had revelation of God, right? Before this, before he went to Egypt. Yeah, the burning bush. Remember what he did there? <laughs> Same thing, right? <clears throat> Worship. So when there's revelation, Moses gives us a good example. Made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And then what does God say to him in verse 11? So God says, verse 10, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to make a covenant before you and all the people. Blah, blah. And then verse 11, be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. So obedience, right? If we're going to worship God and recognize who he is, then we better do what he says. And that's what God's saying here. He's revealing himself to Moses, but he's also saying... Okay, we need to get back on track now. There needs to be some obedience happening because it ain't been happening so far. <laughs> Take a look at, at Joshua chapter 5. This is another of my favorite stories of this formula. So you remember the situation, okay, so now Moses has brought the people back to the land of Israel, but he's died. Uh, remember he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. Joshua is now leading the people, which by the way, Joshua, interesting guy too, back in that same passage that we looked at, Joshua is in the middle of that passage. Did you notice that? I skipped over it. But Exodus 34, uh, sorry, 33, verses, uh, verses 7 through 11, is this little parentheses in the story, which seems unusual. Why in the world would Moses include this little piece in here? But he talks about Joshua coming into the tent uh, where, Moses, where Moses would go into the tent and meet with the Lord face to face, right? Uh, and it came about whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw that, they would all arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Then the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, and the young man would not depart from the tent. Why does he put that in there? Because he wants us to know what kind of a guy Joshua is. He is a man who seeks the presence of God. He like even after Moses left, Joshua was like, I gotta stay right here. 
I want what Moses has got, right? I want the presence of God like that. I want that communing, friend-to-friend relationship. I love Him, you know, and I want to know Him. So Joshua is the person now picked to lead the people into the Promised Land. And so they come up against the first place. Yeah, Jericho. So chapter 5, verse 13. Uh, Now it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn. Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? He said, No. Rather, I indeed come now as captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua, okay, he's just received a revelation. (laughs) He realizes this is no person, no human. This is captain of the host of the Lord. Actually, I'm pretty convinced it's Jesus in physical form in the Old Testament because he receives worship. If he was an angel, he would not have received worship, right? We have many instances where angels, when you try to worship them, would say, no, I'm just an angel. So if this had been an angel, he would have refused Joshua's worship. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and bowed down and said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Sound familiar? And Joshua did so, again, telling me that this is deity, right? If it was an angel, he wouldn't have said, This place is holy. I'm just an angel. It's not holy ground. It's maybe... You know, important ground, <laughs> but but this guy says, you know, remove your sandals, and, and I'm sure Joshua remembered that line from when Moses that happened to Moses. So then the chapter ends there. Joshua does that, right? So Joshua's got revelation, and he does the right response: worship. Well, where's the obedience? Well, see we. We start a new chapter in chapter 6, and we kind of think the story ended. But actually, the story hasn't ended. It's just a chapter break. And it's giving us a little information so we understand where the obedience is coming in. Jericho was tightly shut because the sons of Israel. No one went out and came in. Verse 2, And the Lord said to Joshua, You know what I think? I think this is the same conversation. See, I've given Jericho into your hand. You shall march around the city. And he goes on and explains, you know the story well, what they were to do. Go around seven times, and on the seventh day, after the seventh time, the walls would fall down. Where did that revelation come from? Where was that conversation happening? I believe that it was happening on that hillside between him and the commander of the host of the Lord. Why? He's the commander of the host of the Lord. He's the... He's the one that knows how to do strategy for battle. He's, he's the guy that's going to give Joshua the marching orders. He's going to tell Joshua how to fight the battle of Jericho. <laughs> so he tells Joshua what to do. And Joshua obeys. After he worshiped, he gets the instructions and he obeys. And that's how transformation takes place. So Joshua's life is transformed. In fact... All of Israel is transformed because they have their first major victory because they were obedient and they worshipped. And they realize, wow, God is with us and we're going to take the land. Not in our own way, not by our own strategies, not by the things we thought up. Nobody would have thought this up, right? 
But God gave revelation. Joshua had the right response. And he and the people were transformed. Um, there's lots of other passages. We're not going to take the time to look them up, but Isaiah chapter 6. You guys are probably familiar with that passage of Isaiah receiving the revelation of... Remember he says in the... Was it the sixth year of Uzziah the king? I saw the Lord. What does he do? <coughs> he worships. <coughs> in fact, he worships. He says, I... I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Depart from me. But then God cleanses him. So part of this worship is what? Repentance, right? Sometimes repentance needs to be involved in our worship. When we have that revelation from God, and we see the sin that we have done, our worship needs to include a repentance. And then it needs to include obedience. So what did what does Isaiah do after that? He obeys. He God says, Okay, I've got something for you to do. I need you to take this word to the people. And he gives Isaiah his marching orders, and Isaiah does it. After he's received the revelation and had the response of worship. Same thing with uh, Ezekiel. Ezek- that happens to Ezekiel in chapter one of Ezekiel. All the way through chapter, starting in verse 26, all the way through chapter 3, verse 4, is the story of Ezekiel's encounter. By the way, it happens in the New Testament too. <coughs> if you look at the book of Romans, one of the great books of the New Testament, you know, written by Western minded Paul, who lays everything out systematically here in this book for us to understand Christianity. Well, what does he do? He goes through chapters 1 through 11 with nothing but revelation. If you want a quick summary of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 through chapter 11, verse 32 is all the revelation of God about what is Christianity? I guess if you could say it that way, you know, what is what is God's plan? It's all laid out there in Romans chapter one, verse chapter one through chapter eleven, verse thirty-two. And how does he finish in thirty-two of chapter eleven? His summary verse: For God has shut up all in disobedience, that He might show mercy to all. That's the summary of all that Paul has written. So far, God, no one, no one, no one is perfect and acceptable on their own standards before God. God has shut up all in disobedience that, that why? That he might show mercy to all. Why? Because we learned about God's character, didn't we, back in Exodus. He's merciful. He can't stand sin and he won't stand for it, but he's merciful and compassionate, so he made a way. So Paul lays it all out. He gives this incredible passage from chapters 1 through 11 of Revelation. God's revelation. So what has to happen next? What needs to be Paul's response after writing all this revelation? Well, read verse 33 through 36. 
Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who can become his counselor? Or who has been first given to him that he might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I mean, four verses of just intense worship, right? Paul is just, can you, can you try to picture Paul writing this book when he wrote it the first time? Yeah? He just finishes with verse 32 there, and I can just imagine him being overcome by realizing the incredible you know, mystery of God that has been revealed now through this revelation that was given to Paul to write. And he's overcome by it, and he can't do anything but worship. So he just breaks out in spontaneous worship and records it for us. And then what should happen next? Obedience, right? So why did, so why, how do we see the rest of the book of Romans? Chapter 12 all the way to the end is what? How to live the Christian life. How to obey. What to do. It's all about obedience. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your, your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed, the passage we read earlier, to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And he goes on, from there on, it's all practical stuff on how to obey and live the Christian life. It's all about obedience. It's what to do. Because that's how it works. We receive revelation. We worship God for who He is. We, and then we obey what He tells us to do. So that's why Paul says in verse twelve, chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you therefore. Now he just goes into the rest of the book is about how to practically live your life as a person who's been impacted by and has received this revelation that I've just been writing about in the first 11 chapters. Same thing happens in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 are all, are all revelation. It's all about life in Christ. What God is like. How this works. Who Jesus... It's, it's all revelation of the uniqueness of Christ our position in Him, how we're saved by grace, all revelation of incredible truth. And how does He finish in verse in chapter 3? Look at the last two verses of chapter 3 of Ephesians. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask and think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I mean, it's just like Paul had the same experience. He writes this revelation under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he's overcome with how awesome God is, and he just breaks out in spontaneous praise at the end of chapter 3. And then what is 4, 5, and 6 all about? All practical application of how to live the Christian life. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, in all humility, gentleness, patience, and he goes on and on and on, all of it, the rest of the book, practical application on how to obey you know, the revelation that we've been given.
So I think this is a biblical way to understand transformation. And I just want to encourage us, read Scripture this way. (laughs) Read Scripture in a way that we see the revelation that God is giving us, then have the right response to worship Him, to thank Him, to cry out to Him, to adore Him, to repent if that's necessary. And then to to take the next step, and that is obey whatever it is that, that He's telling us to do. His revelation will, will always come in order to bring about transformation. He's committed to this process of us being changed into the image of Christ. So when He reveals something to us, it's because there's something He wants to do in us to make us more like Him. Okay. Questions? Thoughts? Examples? Stories? Anybody had that happen to them? (laughs) Where God's light has shined into your life and you you had to respond? I think um, one example to me of that is to have a counselor and a school, high school, and I was walking down the hallway, and I just, this name came to me, and I didn't know why, and it was normal for me to do that, and that's, to me, how it, we worked, but um, very, I couldn't, and it was like Friday afternoon, late in the afternoon, I just wanted to go home, and, you know, I just, I wanted to ignore it, mm-hmm. and it was so powerful and strong, of course, I had no idea what, why, where the girl was, I went, and, but it was just something I could not let go of and just praying about it it was heavy and um, so I went and looked up the schedule where where she was and um, looked in the classroom and uh, pulled her out and just brought her to the office and was like I have no idea why I brought you in here um, I just felt like it was heavy on my heart to get you here and she just started crying and she said she had written a letter uh, to take a life and um, she knew why I was there. She knew that it was God's, you know, intervention. That she didn't want to to leave, and she didn't want to give up. But she didn't have an answer. And it was that experience, that feeling, was that trust in Him. That it, I felt crazy because I didn't know what I was doing. You know, God knew what I was to listen and to obey. And so obviously, after that, this the the feeling from that of not, I don't feel worthy, you know, of just like, you're amazing. And uh, to just thank him for for what he does and how he does it. But it don't, to me, I only see it when I, it's blind faith. Because it doesn't ever make sense to me. Until <laughs> after the fact. Yeah. That's probably the one that's significant. That's great. That's exciting, too, because after something like that, you, you begin, you realize that that was the Lord and so your faith is encouraged to the next time God speaks to you to to obey you know, to not doubt 
not waver, not think, well, I don't know. I can't tell you the number of times I've done that where I've heard the Lord speak, but I haven't followed through. And then later I realize, you know, and I need to repent from that. But then when I do obey, it encourages me. And that's how we, we learn. We grow in that whole thing. Right? And He gives you bigger assignments. <laughs> I don't think that's where I went. It, it, it becomes powerful to me. And I really felt Him more so. I trusted Him more after that and would do more, but it got so real. And um, <coughs> that's, that's where it got complicated. <laughs> yes, I still struggle with that because it's so... There's something similar in my freshman year of, of college at Tech, and like I had, you know, grown up in this church and I had gone to a, even a Christian school, and so my desire always, you know, I wanted to, as soon as I was old enough to kind of make my faith my own, and I made that decision, but I wanted to share my faith, but I had no idea how to do it, because almost everyone I was around had at least heard it before, and so then going to Texas Tech, it was completely different, and um, there was a day I was... Um, I had a calculus class and I saw a guy in the hallway and it was one of those things that it was just kind of like just really felt like I needed to go talk to him and he he was blinding me I was seeing eye dogs so I thought maybe I just you know it was like oh well he looks lonely because no one was sitting with him in the hallway and but I had no idea how to even approach him like I had no conversation starters like I couldn't just go sit to him and he would see me and you know I'd have to say something to him and and so I let the opportunity pass and I just felt really like burden like I really kind of missed a huge opportunity and, and I felt really bad about it and then like the next week he showed up in my jogging class and it was just really random he was in that class with me and I knew he had math afterwards and so I felt like okay well if I've seen him twice and you know like I feel like the Lord's kind of like okay don't miss this time like there's no excuse this time and so I went and just asked if he would like to walk to math afterwards and over the course of a year um, like he, he wasn't a Christian and so we'd have like 15 minutes walking to class and we'd just start talking about things and eventually started coming to church with me and eventually after like conversations we'd had and and he got to know the pastor at that church he accepted Christ and like the transformation part like for me it was a transformational process because it was the Lord he just gave me this opportunity he revealed like this opportunity and how I was supposed to go about it and it was now that something like sharing my faith what didn't wasn't such a scary foreign thing anymore and then also for him like my friend, when he heard the truth of the gospel, just to see, like, he loves the Lord so much now. It's so cool to see, like, how much of a difference there is and how completely devoted to God he is after hearing that and responding to it. And that was just, it was an exciting thing. Like, he, you know, he'll he'll call me or he'll text me and just talk about how the Lord's working in his life. And, you know, three years ago, he was like, I want to find the Quran in Braille so I can study it or the, you know, all these things and now he's like I love Jesus and so that was like a cool a cool example of that to see mm -hmm. you know the two sides of it. So. Any other thoughts?
think some of the struggle comes with the revelation part is when you hear something or when someone says something to you, I think of you and Pamela, and she said, well, he didn't tell me that, you know, and the, the obedience at that point of, you know, of, of accepting that or, or mm -hmm. receiving that revelation. Yeah. You know, talk to her about that. She'd probably tell you quite a story <laughs> so, you know, yes, about all of that, what God was doing yeah. in her. See, for her, she had to trust the authority that God had placed in her yeah. life. Yeah. That was hard. I can I cannot see that. So can God so was God speaking to her? You know? I'm sure he grew her quite a bit yeah. in that. And what she was learning was to trust me. Mm -hmm. That's a whole nother teaching of <laughs> spiritual authority. Mm -hmm. Okay, there's a lot there about okay. God God works through spiritual authority. So God doesn't necessarily always have to tell you individually everything. That's for you. Sometimes He tells your spiritual authority the things that are for you. And are you willing to obey God through that? Or do you rebel against spiritual authority and say, no, I'm only going to do the things that God personally tells me. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a test. We need to be careful because Scripture is clear that God works through spiritual authority. So we have a re rela personal relationship with God, yes. That doesn't obligate God to have to tell us everything. <laughs> well, and I'm thinking too of people that will come to you and say, oh, I have a word for you. Mm. Or, you know, it's like right. it's telling me to tell you this. Yeah. And I guess in that case, what you said earlier, that you measured up against Scripture, and, you know, is there some, does it resonate? Does it, you know, or... Is it just yeah. someone wanting you to do something yeah. so they're telling you what God said? Right. There's two things that you have to do when somebody comes up to you with that. Okay? One is, like I mentioned, you've got to test it against Scripture, which may or may not work. Yeah. I mean, depending on what they say to you, right? Uh, but then you also need to take it to your spiritual authority. Okay? Who has God placed you under in His kingdom? If God is is giving you instructions from outside, okay, not just directly to you in your personal communion with Him, then it needs to be either come through your spiritual authority or be uh, or be um, acknowledged. What's the word I'm looking for? Confirmed. Uh, confirmed. Yeah, by your spiritual authority. Now, again, I mean, that's for significant things, right? Somebody may come up to you and say, the Lord wants you to know how much He loves you today, right? right? Okay, well, we know that's true in Scripture. I don't have to run to my pastor or, or, or somebody. And, you know what I'm saying? So there, obviously we need to think through. But if we're talking about instructional words that, that are indicating some specific action that we need to take, we need to do those two things. And that's why we all in the body of Christ need to be in spiritual authority. That's the problem with sort of lone ranger Christians who never never put themselves under spiritual authority. They're not there's no accountability in their life to test the words that they either are receiving from other people or themselves. It's all got to be tested.
any other thoughts? On the other side of that, um, I attended here at Grace on Sunday with my boyfriend, and um, he came out, and he had been struggling his walk, definitely, and um, it was someone here at Grace that we didn't know, and um, she just had come up to me after the service, and she said, I'm, this is not something I normally do, I'm, I'm just, I just feel like I need to do this, and it, um, he actually had been playing softball and injured his shoulder, and it had been hurting, and she said, but has your shoulder been hurting you lately, and she mm -hmm. just felt a call, like, to pray with him mm -hmm. for his shoulder, and mm -hmm. I know the shoulder was the object of what was going on at the time, but what that did for him was really say what he got from that was I'm important to God. Exactly. And God yeah. said, That's right. I'm not, you're not nothing to me. I want right. you here. Right. And it was really, and she, on the other hand, I don't, I didn't, I didn't see it happen. I don't know her. So she never necessarily got, got that back from yeah. him, what it did for him. But we never know what we That's do right. sometimes when we take that chance and listen. Because uh, it certainly, affected his life and um and like i said she never yeah. got that very special though well she'll be she will eventually you know one way or another i'm sure the lord will show her but that yeah that's just the way god is that's how it's supposed to work in his kingdom right he's i think he's talking to us so much more than we realize to us meaning the corporate you know body of christ and doing things like that and so when you when you're somewhere and you do feel sort of a prompting to say something to somebody, you know, it does take faith to to step out and do that. But I think you will do it. I, that's my encouragement: is take that step of faith. And even if it turned out that it maybe didn't fit, or that person is kind of like, well, that's not that's okay. You're you're learning what it means to walk in faith, to hear God, and respond in obedience. You know you. That's how we begin to learn and discern the voice of, of God speaking to us is by taking those steps of faith. And again, like I said, I've, there's been many times when I know God said to do something and I'm kind of like discounting it and I've learned a later, oh, that really was the Lord. So, yeah, that's, that's part of the joy of the Christian life is, you know, we, we are here to encourage and uplift and, and help one another. And... God knows just what that person needs. And a lot of times he's going to use you to, to bring that word of encouragement to them. Uh, so, yeah, praise the Lord. You know, that's we get that revelation. We need to worship God and say, thank you, Lord, for telling me this. I, you're awesome, and I'm going to take that step of faith now and go, <laughs> go speak, you know, that word to them. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to talk about how to discern whether that's the Lord because some people, unfortunately, you know, use that idea, okay, God's given me a word for you, and it ends up, and it's not, okay? God does not, God brings correction, but he doesn't bring condemnation. And so when somebody comes to you and gives a condemnation word, that's not from the Lord, okay? Because God does not bring condemnation. Now, he does bring correction, so it could be done as a corrective word, but a corrective word from God is always done in love, in acceptance, and through spiritual authority. So there's there's ways that we can help discern and make sure that you know we're receiving something really from the Lord and not just somebody 
trying to do some manipulative thing, you know. Um, yeah. Okay, we're ten minutes from lunch, so I don't. Let me just finish out. Flip your page over. I know you probably are thinking, okay, it's noon and we just finished page one, <laughs> and we're not even through the introduction because uh, this is part B of the introduction. But but that's okay. I promise you, we're going to get through meditation after lunch, and. Uh, and we'll have plenty of time to, to talk about it. So the goal for this class, again, is to merely scratch the surface of understanding the devotional life, and in so doing, hopefully motivate each other to pursue it with more determination, passion, and joy. Now there's bad news and good news. The bad news is your journey toward the devotional life will be opposed every step of the way by our common enemy, who very well knows the power of a life turned toward its maker. Do not think that it will be easy I think each one of us probably in this room could give you all of us stories of, of how we've been opposed you know, by the, the enemy, by Satan, to pursue God. Distractions and, and all kinds of tactics that he uses. So uh, realize that this is not going to be an easy thing. If it was easy, you know, the church would look a lot different right now. <laughs> uh, but it, it's not easy. But the good news is, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. If you seek the Lord in earnest, you will find Him. Those passages you can look up. Um, and in finding Him, you will find life. I want you to write these passages down, though, and let's read them. John 5, 39 and 40. <coughs> see who hasn't read in a bit. Julie, would you look that one up? John 5, 39 and 40. And Vasilka, would you look up John 6, verse 63? <clears throat> okay. Let's look at John 5, 39 and 40. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Yeah. I mean, this is a really startling passage, especially for people who, like me, grew up with this as the only kind of understanding of God's revelation. Right? So what's happening in here is that... <clears throat> The Jews, Jesus has begun his ministry, and the Jews are not happy about it because he's breaking rules. You know, you're not supposed to do that in the system, right? You got to keep all the rules. So what has he done? What happens in chapter five? He heals this guy who is trying to get into the waters of Bethesda, and Jesus comes up to him. He's lying there on his pallet and says, "You know, do you want to get well?" Verse six. And then in verse 8, Jesus says, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. What is startling about his command to this guy? Okay, all we kind of focus on is the healing part. Jesus said, Arise and walk, right? Which was completely miraculous healing. But he tells him to do something else. What? Pick up his mat. Yeah, take up his pallet or mat or whatever he was lying on. Why would Jesus... I mean, do you think he wants to carry that thing around? What in the world is Jesus doing? Well, what does it say in verse 9? 
Immediately the man became well. He took up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath. Uh-oh, he just broke a rule. Not only did Jesus break a rule, but the guy that got healed broke a rule. And that's why the Jews are upset. Look at verse 10. Therefore the Jews were saying to him who was cured, so they don't go to Jesus, they go to the poor guy who's been, what, 30, how many years? 38 years laying on this pallet. And the Jews go up to him, and instead of rejoicing, okay, worship, at this incredible revelation of God's power, they're like, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath, man. You're not supposed to be carrying that pallet. <laughs> Can you believe this? This is just incredible to me. They're worried about him breaking the Sabbath. When he goes, well, look, the guy that made me well was the one that said, you know, take it up. He's like, look, if this guy can heal me, he can give me permission to break the Sabbath. <laughs> Wonderful insight from this man, right? It's like, look, I don't, I'm not worried about break, keeping the Sabbath. Besides, the first time I walked in 38 years. Unbelievable. So then they're focused on, well, who did that? Oh, and then they go to Jesus and they're complaining to him. So Jesus goes into this amazing discourse about how it's all related to this thing of working. Because that's what they're focused on. You can't work on the Sabbath. So why does Jesus make all these statements about work? Look at 17. My Father is working, and I myself am working. Look, you guys, we're working. We don't care if it's the Sabbath or not. God is busy in the process of building His kingdom and doing stuff. doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath or not. right? And so He's trying to get them off of this false thinking of keeping rules and back into relationship. This is a perfect example of it. Look at verse 18. For this cause the Jews were seeking to all the more to kill him because he was not only breaking the Sabbath, he was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus brings in the aspect of relationship. You know, He says, look, it's all about a relationship. My Father is telling me what to do and I'm doing it. My Father is working. And by the way, I and my Father are one. And so he's trying to gear them off of the religiousness of following a system to a relation understanding of the relationship that God wants to have with you. He wants to be your father, and you're going to work alongside of him and do things with him. And just like I'm doing, I do. He goes, he says, look at verse 19. I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son. This is a relationship. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all the things that He Himself is doing. Greater works. He's like, come on! You're missing the point entirely with your works thing on the Sabbath. So, anyway, that all leads to verse 38 and 39, the end of this talk He has with these religious leaders. <clears throat> you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is these that bear witness of me. And you're unwilling to come to me that you may have life. <coughs> it's all about relationship to God the Father through Christ the Son is what matters. Not keeping rules and not even trying to study this book so that you can know it so well and think that you're good because you're following all the do's and don'ts, you know. 
you're you're a good student of the scriptures. That's a pretty powerful statement for people who are serious about the study of the word, which we all need to be. But we need to be careful that we don't substitute the study of God's word and the scriptures for our relationship with God. You hear the difference there? I'm not saying we don't study the scriptures. I'm saying don't substitute the study of God's word for your relationship with God. John six sixty three. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no avail. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Yeah. <clears throat> there again. It's all about the spirit life, not the physical. Not <clears throat> not what we know in our heads and our brains, and not our good works. It's the Spirit that gives life. And Jesus is the one who is the Word, the living Word. And He has spoken, and His words are spirit and life. This also is given right after He's given this real hard teaching about you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? Passage sometimes we refer to in communion. And, and when He said that, that's exactly what He was getting at, right? Is you need to commune with me. So much so that you're taking me in. It becomes a part of you. Just like food and drink become a part of you when you take them in, that's what you need to do with me. And then the disciples are kind of like, what is he talking about? And it says that a lot of the disciples left after that. It's like, this guy has lost it completely. He's gone off the deep end and we're out of here. And a lot of them do. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Are you leaving me too? You know, verse 60, uh, 61. Jesus says to his disciples, Does this cause you to stumble? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. In other words, he's saying, It's not about the flesh. I wasn't talking about the flesh, eat my body, drink my blood. The flesh profits nothing. It's about the Spirit. He's trying to give a spiritual lesson in a physical analogy. And they missed the connection and they just thought about the physical analogy and couldn't get past that. So he's telling his disciples, he's giving them the explanation. This is a spiritual principle. It's a spirit life I'm talking about taking in. Communing with me, walking with me, having intimacy with me. Just like the food and drink you take in become a part of you, I become a part of you. Abide in me. Abide in the vine, right? It's all about abiding. Okay, we're going to get more into that next time.